Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. This ends at prom, and we're here to make you think about death and get sad and stuff. One, two, three, four. Yeah, we can't yell at Kim Pine because we will explode our microphones. I, I, I want it to be, you know, just for for the sake of not irritating our neighbors by screaming too much. Assume that that has like an O oh, bondage up yours delivery. Yes, just yes, it's punched up <laughs> like that in your mind. <laughs> Yeah, we're also recording this episode on Christmas, and we're trying to, you know, be be nice, festive, holly jolly neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> so if you did not know from that intro or the fact that all of our podcasts have the movie title in the title, we're talking about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yes, and uh, it wasn't really ever planned, but after the last episode of the previous year was Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which felt very, you know, New Year's-y. It oh, made yeah. sense. We joked that, like, huh, we just apparently only end the year with Michael Sarah movies. Maybe next year we'll do Scott Pilgrim as, like, a bit. But then we thought about it and we're like, you know, there's actually a lot of really compelling things to talk about in Scott Pilgrim. So I think we're going to do that. Yeah, there's a ton to talk about with Scott Pilgrim. And yes, I mean, people can make the argument that this is a teen boy movie. I mean, Michael Sarah is our lead. Scott Pilgrim is the titular role. Uh-huh. But this movie is so much about how men are incapable of navigating their shit with women and it is the the hat trick of the Michael Sarah with a manic pixie dream girl character three very different characters if mm-hmm. we're looking at year 1 which was Juno uh year 2 which was Nora from Nick and Nora and now we have Ramona Flowers and Scott Pilgrim there's something really interesting here so Michael I'm excited Sarah. to end our year on him Michael Sarah just got with like really cool like romantic leads <laughs> okay like for real talk though has any other like quote unquote teen heartthrob character whatever you want to call them had like a better run of girlfriends in movies than Michael Sarah I think no yeah I just I I love Michael Sarah I appreciate this like four year stretch of his career I think he's marvelous um apparently he's in the Barbie movie next year and I'm really looking forward oh, yeah, to like Michael is. Sarah Renaissance. That will get us far away from Sausage Party and Pause of Fury. <laughs> yeah, he's been doing some indie stuff, uh, but yeah, he's he's not been doing... He's the most indie boy imaginable. <laughs> yes, he really is. But yeah, he's not been doing stuff as like high profile as this like five-year window that mm-hmm. we explore a lot on the show. But for me, Scott Pilgrim was a very important movie. 
and I feel like it may have had some impact on you as well. So what was your introduction to Scott Pilgrim versus the world? So I did not see Scott Pilgrim when it was in theaters. Um, I also did not see it when it was brand, brand new. I think I saw it after it had like slipped down on the pecking order of a red box rental outside of a Walgreens at a friend's house. Uh-huh. So I saw it maybe the year after it came out on like home video release. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, I was a huge fan of Edgar Wright because of Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. So this was really solidifying him as a, as my one of my favorite auteurs, as it were. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, Scott Pilgrim was real tight. Um, I don't think I realized at the time the specific zeitgeist that it captured. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's this perfect time capsule that I think is really fascinating and I'm super excited to dive into. Yeah, big same. Scott Pilgrim was a huge deal for me when it came out. The theater group that I am still friends with to this day that I went to school with were all really, really big into Scott Pilgrim. Because a really weird thing about that friend group, and I won't call it weird, but yes, we were all theater kids, but we were all also like huge geeks. Like Mm -hmm. by definition, like that 2010s like geek nerd era. Mm -hmm. Like everybody was really into like retro video games and comic books before like it was cool to be into comic books again. So we were all really, really dorky. And then we were all also into like Indian alt music. Mm -hmm. So Scott Pilgrim like hit a lot of intersections for all of us to the point where like my friend group went as like the characters from Scott Pilgrim for Halloween. Were you Ramona? No, I was not. Um, Dear, dear friend of Mine was Ramona, and um, were you? I didn't. Do, I didn't go because oh. I was too busy being a uh, overachiever. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I think that was the year that I was a Silent Hill nurse. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, that's a good costume. Yeah, though. it was very fun. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Scott Pilgrim was a big thing. Uh, we all started reading the books. Um. Really, really loved it. Watched it all the time. It was also one of those movies that. We had a copy of it, so it would, like, play in the background at parties. Mm -hmm. Like, Scott Pilgrim is a great movie to put on the background at parties because it's so visually interesting. And you can kind of pop in Mm -hmm. whenever, and there's still just stuff going on. Exactly. Um, There's not really lulls. Uh, But no, like, specifically thinking about, like, you being in college when this came out, Mm -hmm. you and I are basically the same age as the characters in this movie, Mm -hmm. and... And and this movie has pretty much no adults in it. No no one above the age of thirty for sure. Probably no one above the age of like twenty eight or twenty seven. Yeah, I think outside we of reali- the vegan police. Yeah, I was like, I think we realized the vegan police are canonically the oldest people in this whole movie. Yes, no one else is there, so it's just a bunch of like young people. It has very collegey vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of like hanging out with friends who went to college and I didn't, and they would bring like their Nintendo sixty four or their GameCube. So that they could play Goldeneye while drinking. Mm-hmm. Like, this has that sort of feel to it for, like, a whole film. Mm-hmm. And I like that you bring up, like, the idea of geeks and nerds before that became popular. Mm-hmm. Because this is, like, two years before Avengers becomes a thing. And then nerds sort of cannot really claim that they're underdogs anymore because it becomes the biggest franchise in the universe. Yeah, Scott Pilgrim is falling into this little sweet spot where the nerd revolution is starting. Mm-hmm. Like, you can go to Hot Topic and get, like, a one-up shirt uh, from Super Mario. 
you can go to Target and you can find like a Donkey Kong shirt. That's something that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Comic book movies are starting to become more popular, but you're right. It's when Avengers hits that it like just explodes. It goes mainstream. It, and, and it goes not, mainstream. It's not a niche thing anymore. Right. And that's why Scott Pilgrim is also so magical is because there are so many like in-universe references to geek stuff that were not mainstream at the time. Mm-hmm. Like Sex Bob-omb is pretty obvious. Like the band name like a Bob-omb is from Mario. Yeah. But like Clash of Demon Head is a band and that's also a video game. Mm-hmm. I know in the books there's a band that's called Sonic and Knuckles and like obviously that's a little bit more obvious. Mm-hmm. But it's still like if you don't know the world and Sonic the Hedgehog 2 the movie doesn't exist yet who the fuck is Knuckles? Mm-hmm. Like that that's a thing. And there's something like weirdly exciting about that. And it was really exciting for all of us. It was definitely exciting for me as somebody who was like a weird alt girl who liked to dye her hair to see a mainstream character like this. Obviously, I have much more complicated feelings about the Ramona Flowers character as an adult. But at the time, I was thrilled. Oh, of course. I thought Ramona was great. Honestly, I kind of love everyone in this movie, if I'm being honest. But we talked about this um, on a Patreon episode when we did Clerks, because Clerks 3 also came out this year. And there is a sense of nerddom that existed before and after Clerks, and mm-hmm. then everything changed. Mm-hmm. And I think that Scott Pilgrim is also one of those landmark films where it's like, hey, that specific version of being a geek, there's a change before and after Scott Pilgrim is released. Totally. I mean, the Clerks thing, I think that's where like the... Star Wars side of nerd, Different generations of nerds. Yes, that's like the Gen X nerds. Scott Pilgrim is the millennial nerd movie. Like mm-hmm. that, this is what our barometer is. And I think that that's fascinating. Um, so before we dive in any deeper, let's go over our synopsis from our friend Dango. And, ooh, I have some thoughts about this. Uh-huh. As the bass guitarist for a garage rock band, Scott Pilgrim, Michael Sarah, has never had trouble getting a girlfriend. Usually the problem is getting rid of them. But when Ramona Flowers, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, skates into his heart, he finds she has the most troublesome baggage of all, an evil army of ex-boyfriends who will stop at nothing to eliminate him as Ramona's suitor. Uh, A few things. One, exes. Friendango, this is bisexual erasure. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a few things that are wrong with that. And that's one of the reasons I love reading from Fandango specifically, because half the time it's like phoned in and like 25% of the time it's not right. Right. And then there's like the little percentages of people who really fucking love that movie and yeah. were really excited to write yeah. the copy that day. <laughs> so um, I, that's not correct. And that's I, not correct. No. So, um, I, I, I don't know. I think that it's a lot more complicated than that, especially because I don't think people re- really give this movie credit for being as complicated as it is, mm-hmm. despite the fact it's very upfront and honest about everything it's saying. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. And we're going to get into all of that juicy, juicy nonsense after everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. 
If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. We're This Ends at Prom, and we're here to make money and sell out and stuff. <laughs> 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 All right. BJ, do you, want, do, you want to do, do you want a little context for this? Let's do a little context. What are we working with? All right. So we're in 2010. We have done a couple films from this year, with the big one being Easy A. Mm-hmm. Like Huge. that is Massive. the classic archetypal teen canon that we normally discuss. Mm -hmm. But we have other things that came out this year, and there's not really a concrete theme to these releases, despite us still being in the era of the book-to-franchise blockbuster. Mm -hmm. So also released this year, you have Twilight Eclipse, and by extension, Vampire Suck. Mm -hmm. You have The Runaways, um, Tim Burton's really awful Alice in Wonderland thing. Mm -hmm. I, I hate looking at it. Uh, Dear John, Daydream Nation, which we've previously covered, mm-hmm. Step Up 3, mm-hmm. Submarine, which I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, Submarine's great. the closest contemporary to this, Kick-Ass. Oh, I love Kick-Ass. I mean, we've talked about that on the Patreon as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, you're right. Kick-Ass is the closest thing to this. Yes. And to compare these two films, um, Scott Pilgrim cost a bit more, and it shows because it's so visually stunning. Mm-hmm. But... Kick-Ass did pretty well. I think it did about $100 million. Um, Scott Pilgrim lost money. Yeah, which is always wild to me. I mean, it does have a cult following for obvious reasons. It's like designed to be a cult following. <laughs> for sure. But yeah, it did not It did not make the money that it deserved. I don't think people knew what to make of it. And I also think the fact that this movie is also really cynical about its main character. Mm-hmm. I think people didn't know what to do with because they were expecting this to be like a fantasy avatar for themselves, but um, you can't be a fantasy avatar of Scott Pilgrim without admitting that you're kind of the fucking problem. Yeah, but people definitely um, have an interpretation of Scott that is not correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Kick-Ass is also just an easier sell because people know what a superhero movie is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And that movie subverts superhero expectations because we've always had superhero movies. We've had superhero Saturday morning cartoons. Like, you know what that's supposed to be. Scott Pilgrim is an adaptation, which most of the big films from this year are, of a comic book that's about video games, which are now two different layers of nerdy Mm -hmm. stuff that isn't superheroes. And it's a little hard to make heads or tails of it if you're not familiar. Also, an interesting thing worth noting is that a video game looking like a video game is kind of a dirty word during this time. Yes. We're, we're in the seventh generation of consoles, and that era is defined largely by the Wii pumping out a whole lot of, like, family-friendly shovelware. Mm-hmm. And for the PlayStation and Xbox releases being, like, these gritty rated M games that are trying to push what, like, video game storytelling can be, like... Bioshock and Mass Effect and Red Dead Redemption. And even when you get to like sort of sillier things like Dead Rising 2, it's still rated M. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a couple years removed from when something like uh, Indie Game the Movie comes out and you start to see like the retro video game sensibilities and simplicity gain a following and mm-hmm. become popular again. Mm-hmm. And Scott Pilgrim's a little before that. Mm-hmm. And it has like a retro like Turtles in Time style beat em up game that I think is just kind of okay, but it's stunning to look at, and I love how it sounds. Mm -hmm. But 
it's again, it's just this movie is a little too much of a video game for its own good in this specific era. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. And part of the appeal that Scott Pilgrim has always had for me is that style because I have Mm -hmm. never been somebody who gives a flying shit about any of those like gritty video games that you're talking about. Like I, I don't I, play Call of Duty Black Ops. I, I didn't care about Assassin's Creed. <laughs> yeah, like, the, like, and that's not no shade to those games or yeah. the people who enjoy them that's at all. That's not my jam. That's just never been my jam. My jam has always been, like, retro stuff. And, like, mm-hmm. I'm not a gamer in the slightest. I think I've talked about this on the show, but if I haven't, here you go. I did not grow up playing video games because I was too poor to afford them. Mm-hmm. So the video games that I did get to play were ones that my friends had, which are retro consoles like those are the ones I was allowed to play so those Mm -hmm. are the only ones I ever did play and so now when I try to play something that is this like big impressive masterpiece where it feels very immersive and everything looks super realistic it's overwhelming to me you're you're a little bit of an old person trying to look at a phone where you have to like pull it back and put your glasses on you're like what am I even looking at I mean kind of like it just doesn't work for me but then like you introduced me to a game like Binding of Isaac which although a newer game is stylized and the play is very retro. It's like, designed to be Legend of Zelda 1. Yeah, like that really resonates with me immediately. So like I watch something like Scott Pilgrim and like Scott Pilgrim as a video game movie works way more for me than say something like Hardcore Henry, even though it's impressive. God, I really love Hardcore Henry though. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> Hardcore Henry, for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, it's a first person action movie and it does not scan on like a home television the way it does in a theater. Mm-hmm. It's so much cooler in a theater and nobody saw it. <laughs> but like it, it, it just, it, it will never, it's it's one of the best films I've ever seen in a theater that just doesn't work on a small screen. Yeah. And it's like a shame. It's, it's a very cool concept. But again, like that doesn't speak to my sensibilities the mm-hmm. way that Scott Pilgrim does. Like, no, I get it. That very much does. This, this is much more my flavor too, especially because this is very, uh, very thrift store. Everything about it feels thrifted. It's a specific mm-hmm. brand of like indie rock or like even garage rock that was totally my jam mm-hmm. when I was coming up as like a teenager into my 20s. And everything about this is just like the perfect blend of all of the stuff that I want. Like it's an indie movie with flash and sizzle and money. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you brought up kind of like the garage rock thing too, because that's another very, very important aspect of I think why this movie wasn't as successful at the time is that this is sort of like a proto hipster movie. Like mm-hmm. we weren't self-aware enough of hipsterdom yet to like really be subverting it or being critical of it because it hipsterdom was still hipster. Like it was still kind of it was underground. Un- it was underground and it wasn't characterized by a vague idea of people who make bacon a personality and guys who have silly mustaches and ride penny farthings. Right. Like that hadn't become a thing yet. So the fact that this movie is subverting that idea is still very like ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think like people didn't know what to do with that either. Whereas like people like you and I who were actively like quote unquote in the scene during this time period, this really, really speaks to us because we get it. Like all Mm -hmm. of the shorthand that is here I get it. Like, there's a lot of uh, very specific authenticity to this. Very much so. And mm-hmm. like, if you know, you know. And if you don't know, then it feels very weird. So let's let's kind of dive in. And I first want to talk about Scott, obviously, because he's 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 our lead. Yep. How do you feel about uh, Mr. Scott Pilgrim? Honestly, I think that this is. The, the the swan song of Michael Sarah as like a teen icon. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think that this is him doing the most with the 
Michael Sarah typecasting that he ever did during this era. Mm-hmm. I think that he's not just like the stuttering kind of like cutesy, awkward guy. Uh, we get like a little dose of that when he has a conversation with like his evil self that feels like the Michael Sarah of previous films. Mm-hmm. But this this is a normal Michael Sarah. He just looks and sounds like him, but he doesn't act like him. No, Scott's an ass. <laughs> yeah, but he's not an ass in a way that you associate men with being asses. Correct. All the evil exes. You know, a variety of them to different degrees. They're assholes. They're jerks. They're they're buff. They're jocks. They're pretty or they have money or they're more talented than him. They're doing all the things. Or they're that, stuck up. Yeah. They have all of these things that you associate with jerks versus Scott, who is, he's mundane about being a jerk. He's a soft boy. Exactly. And we didn't see the demonization or even like. The flaw, the the unknowing flaws of the soft boy yet. Right. Like, there was that op-ed that was written a couple years ago about, like, the dangers of the soft boy. And that is coming out, like, what, a decade after this? Mm-hmm. Like, so it took 10 years post-Scott Pilgrim for people to start actually having conversations about, like, you know what? That artsy boy that, like, you think really does care about you and is listening to you, um... Might not be the best guy. Like, might still be... Just because he's not a walking red flag doesn't mean that the flags are not waving. Yeah, he's the, like, 22-year-old version of the kids who wore... Who, like, stole their little sister's pants so that they could be, like, the tiniest little emo boys in high school. Mm -hmm. This this is the grown-up version who is... Never in that scene, but the scene has shifted in a way that suits him now. Mm -hmm. So he never tried to join another one. He never tried to, like be artificially like emo or anything like that so he didn't sell out so he still has the credibility of being honest to himself but he still has like a slight chip on his shoulder because he's an underdog Mm -hmm. and he's doing it in an environment that he thrives in yes you're absolutely right and the thing is the movie scott pilgrim versus the world is very open and honest about the fact that scott pilgrim the man is a fucking disaster from moment one. Oh, yeah, because we get introduced to him by being like, oh, yeah, um, by the way, I'm dating a 17-year-old Chinese girl who also is going to Catholic school and is basically just a big fetish object for me. And all of his friends are like, you're a jerk. You're gross. I hate you. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you, dude? Don't yeah. do that. She's a child. Yeah, everybody is Everyone, like, immediately. what the hell, dude? <laughs> like, and it's not even a question about it. They know this is fucked up, and they know this is weird, and they're just like, come on, man. Like, get it together. This is not okay. Mm-hmm. But, you know, his whole defense is like, well, we haven't had sex, so, like, there's nothing actually wrong with it. Yeah. Which is such a 2010 mentality. Mm-hmm. Here's... They do address that at multiple different points even. And Scott, mind you, he gets kind of racist where he's like, oh, what? You're inviting me over for dinner knives? What are we having? Chinese food? Can you even date outside your race? Like, it's a bit racist for him to just be throwing things out there really presumptuously like that. But he addresses like, oh, I think I'm too old for you when he's trying to break up with her. And she goes, well, no, my dad is actually nine years older than my mom. Which is also such a justification that so many of us like... Younger people who dated people that were much older than us, like, oh, or, I heard that line or, all the or time. Or the people like you and I who were like, oh, but we were told we were really mature for our age. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's totally fine if I'm 16 and dating a 21-year-old. Like, that's fine for me. Um, it, you think you know what you're doing when you're a teen and you're really ambitious and whatever. But there are there there's certain age levels, I think, in terms of age gap where if you're not 18 – 
dating someone who's above 18 is a problem. And if you're between 18 and like 20, mm-hmm. once you get to 21 and alcohol can get thrown in the mix, that also becomes a problem. Like there's 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 limits. Like yes. there's tears that you have to clear before you, I think you should be dating people in certain age brackets. I agree completely. And I'm glad that you brought up like the low-key racism of Scott Pilgrim because it's pretty prevalent. And the person who wrote the Scott Pilgrim comic books is Brian Lee O'Malley. And Brian Lee O'Malley is half Korean, half French-Canadian. Um, and a lot of Scott Pilgrim kind of navigates some of those struggles that he had as like a biracial person growing up. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who have done some really intense deep dives on the comic books themselves. Sure. Um, but not as much about the movie. But I do find like Scott's interactions with knives to be like they're obviously problematic. We know that a hundred percent they're problematic. But I am weirdly appreciative that they're there because I think people need to understand, like, yeah, that's a microaggression. Like, Mm -hmm. microaggressions are not shown on screen very often. So, so many white people especially have a really warped sense of, like, what is or is not racism. Oh, yeah. He's really pedestrian about it. Yeah. Like, he's not actively and, like, being antagonistically awful. Like, he even acknowledges, like, oh, my God – She's Chinese and a schoolgirl and 17. Oh, fuck. Like, he has the, he's self aware and he mm-hmm. understands but he's the selfish. objects, but he's selfish. Yeah. And so that way he's like not prioritizing knives in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then so when things pop up, like, oh, are we having Chinese food? Like, that's a microaggression. Like, he's not actively being hateful. He's being a dumbass, and he's being racist. You know, it could just be food, Scott. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What the fuck, man? Um, And so, like, I'm glad that those little moments exist because, again, this movie is not, like, on Scott's side. (laughs) No, but... The thing about Scott that I like, and we we talk about this routinely on the show, is that teens should be allowed to be making mistakes, mm-hmm. but because Scott's mistakes are um, sort of radiating out for him, they're hurting people around him. They, mm-hmm. they hurt Knives. They hurt Ramona. They hurt Kim. They, they hurt a lot of the women in his lives and then the men he beats up. Like, it's just a, a, a problem that radiates from the fact that Scott is hurt and he's not growing up like he should, and he's expected to. He he should be making more mature decisions. He should be doing other things, but he's not there yet. And for this story, we're joining him at the exact moment where he is making these changes. Mm-hmm. So if there were, like, a sequel Scott Pilgrim movie, he would theoretically be better. Mm-hmm. One, one would hope. One would hope. And as friend of the show Devon Taylor pointed out on social media after we announced that we were doing this episode... It's always interesting how often, like, new groups of people rediscover Scott Pilgrim every five years, and they're like, oh my god, he's actually the villain. He's a bad guy. And it's like, he's always been the bad guy. The movie tells you that. The second it starts, it says he's bad, and he makes bad decisions, and everyone in his life tells him he's making bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Just because he's the protagonist does not mean he's the hero, and like... That's interesting for a movie that is set up like a video game where he is literally fighting and winning battles. But he's, he's the main character. He's the main character. That doesn't mean he's the hero. No, but he's not the villain. He's just a flawed human character. Right. But a lot of people, especially younger audiences, um, don't grapple well with the idea of following a person who is 
very, very flawed like that. Um, there's obviously this very common thing that we see people associate more with like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, uh, Rick and Morty, Bojack, et cetera, et cetera, where just because someone's the main character, you want to root for them and to all sorts of different degrees. Yeah, sure. But it doesn't mean they're a good person, but people have a hard time dealing with those, especially in this movie where Scott's a loser, but he overcomes obstacles in like kind of a cool, awkward, relatable I don't know, salt of the earth kind of way. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's the everyman. Mm-hmm. But because he's the everyman, he's also making mistakes like an everyman would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but people don't realize that because it's flashy and it's distracting and he's winning. This guy who is flawed keeps winning. He's not being mm-hmm. punished for it in the action, in the, the, the visuals. He's being punished in the story, but people mm-hmm. aren't diving into the actual dialogue of that. Which is why I have always found Scott Pilgrim in just like the world to be very, very interesting because you're playing with the conventions of things like comic books and video games, which tend to be very archetypal. You sure. have hero's journey. You have a hero's journey. And this that's what this is. This is a hero's journey story, but he's not the hero. Nope. And that is really interesting. And I think that's why people's brains kind of short circuit because they don't recognize like how subversive mm-hmm. this story is actually being. Um, because we have Ramona Flowers, mm-hmm. who is not a damsel in distress, but who also is constantly being treated like a prize to be won, which mm-hmm. is a very video game sort of thing. Save the princess. Save the princess. And then at the same time, you know, we look at Ramona Flowers as like the archetype of the manic pixie dream girl. But what is so fascinating to me is she is not a manic pixie dream girl. She is a depressed pixie dream girl. Mm -hmm. She's not manic at all. She is fucking sad, sad, saddy McSattersons. Yes. If I um, if I may draw a parallel that has been drawn numerous times over the years to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. the quote that I want to reference for this, which is perfectly applicable to this girl as well, is that too many guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive, but I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing with her. And the movie enforces that because everything we know about Ramona Flowers we have learned from someone else telling us. Mm -hmm. And then she sometimes gets to reply to like, oh, this is what you've heard. Well, it's actually more like this. Mm -hmm. But 90% of the stuff that we learn about Ramona Flowers is what other people have said. It's their idea of her. Like there's even a segment at the beginning that is almost identical to the mean girls. Like Regina George's hair is insured for whatever million thousand dollars. Like, they start doing that because he's asking people, what do you know about Ramona Flowers? And they all give these like, I think I heard she's a badass. Oh, she's a heartbreaker. Oh, there's these things. So like everything that Scott knows about Ramona for the most part is the idea of her. It's mm-hmm. not actually her, the human being. Dude, what? She's totally real. Who? Ramona Flowers. What? Dude, what do you know about Ramona Flowers? All I know is that she is American. American. Then why don't you go talk to Sandra Monique? They know a lot more. <laughs> Lady dudes, what do you know about Ramona Flowers? I heard she has a boyfriend. Mm-hmm, yes, I know back in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? I heard she kicks all kinds of ass. She's on another level. She has men dying at her feet. She's got some battle scars, dude. 
What about Ramona Flowers? You know her? Tell me now. She just moved here, got a job at Amazon, comes into my work. Does she really? Didn't you say she just broke up with someone? Did she really? That uh, huge fight or whatever? Did they really? Yes, but I didn't want Scott to know that, Steven. Yeah, I don't know what it is about that girl. Scott, I forbid you from hitting on Ramona, even if you haven't had a real girlfriend in over a year. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Scott's mourning period is officially over. He's totally dating a high schooler. Dating a high schooler is the mourning period. It's got a point. So when they have their kind of tiff, I guess, between the defeating of the sixth and seventh exes, or I guess the fifth and sixth and seventh exes, Scott has this line where he says like, hey, I know that you're all mysterious and aloof as a, as a means of like putting up a barrier so that you don't get hurt. And that's totally true. I think um, that Ramona is uh, an American living in Toronto, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, exciting, and that's sort of exotic for all the people in this scene. Like, they know who she is because of how she looks and the reputation she has and all of these exciting things that make her kind of a it girl in their scene. I think Ramona's just trying to be single, but she doesn't know mm-hmm. how to be single. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, she even says, like, she comes to Toronto because she's looking for a fresh start. Mm-hmm. She just left New York. She obviously was in a really fucked up relationship with Gideon. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I love you, Jason Schwartzman. You're so great. Um, but, like, she had this bad relationship. So she's trying to just do her own thing. And Scott is, like, intruding into those plans. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you could argue, like, oh, there's something romantic about that. You know, life's what happens when you're busy making other plans, so to speak. But at the same time... She gives him plenty of, like, outs to be like, nah, I'm not Uh super interested in this. Um, But he is, if nothing, persistent. Uh And uh, so you've you've got that going on. But at the same time, Scott is still dating a high schooler. Uh And, like, everyone in his life knows that this is not a real relationship. It's not actually serious. So that's why they keep saying, like, you're sort of girlfriend or you're pretend girlfriend Uh or whatever. Knives? Is like the unsung hero of this entire movie. Yeah. I I love Knives Chow. I, as a character, I love Ellen Wong's performance. Mm -hmm. I think that when we talk about like the types of teen characters we wish we got to see more of in movies, Knives is absolutely that character because she is so much a teenager Mm -hmm. in like the best possible way. Like she has that line of like, I didn't know good music existed until like two months ago. Mm -hmm. That is such like a purely teen thing thing to experience where for the first time you're actually like stepping out of your comfort zone you're learning new things you're you're obtaining new media that hasn't been like spoon-fed to you're you. discovering yourself you're discovering yourself and like that's really really exciting and she got her heart broken and she justifiably should be fucking angry so something about knives that i think is very very interesting is that um the, the typically men will either find Knives one of two things, like the, the sort of, I can fix her, or she's obsessive and stalkery, both of which are looking at her in a very negative way, mm-hmm. especially considering how all of the things about her could be avoided by like, hey guys, don't date teen girls. She's mm-hmm. not grown up yet. Mm-hmm. And you're making her being 17 a problem 
that you don't know how to emotionally handle. Yes, 100% that. Like, they are treating her like she's a problem when the problem is that they're dating a fucking high schooler. There's nothing wrong with Knives being a high schooler Mm -hmm. and being excited to see live music for the first time and freaking the fuck out because, oh my God, this music speaks to me Uh and I've never had music speak to me before. That's normal as shit. You know what's not normal as shit? You making her feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. Like... Let her be a teenager. You're the weirdo that's expecting a a high schooler to be behaving like a 20-something. Fuck off. Dude, like, when she ends up getting dumped by Scott and ends up with young Neil, and then they go to see (laughs) the Clash of Demon Head live, and young Neil says to her while they're at the bar, you should see them live. (laughs) (laughs) when she literally saw them live or when someone at a party later is like, yeah, the first album is good, but you should hear the first, first album. (laughs) And it just reminds me of all the ways that like guys in bands or guys who were like, yeah, um, my favorite band is like kind of niche. You probably haven't heard of them. Uh, They're called Modest Mouse. Right. It's that specific guy that I love to hate. Yes. (laughs) So there was an article written for The Ringer a couple years ago about why Knives is so great. And I just wanted to like throw this reference out here because I love it. Um, And they talk about like how Scott Pilgrim is like just a feast for the eyes. And there's so much great stuff going on. Of course. And then it says, but it's his dumped underage girlfriend who gets the most satisfying arc. Cheerful arcade queen, cowed record store shopper, unreasonably ecstatic girlfriend of a guy in a band. Her delivery of, oh my gosh, they're on! The first time Sex Bob-omb hits the stage is amazing and mm-hmm. contrasts nicely with Ramona's look of pure horror when Scott mentions he's in a band. Mm-hmm. Knives is the stand-in for all the teenagers ever told they weren't into cool enough stuff, which is to say every teenager and every teenage girls especially. I love that so much because that's exactly who she is. Yeah. Like, she is every teenage girl who's ever been so excited about Twilight or whatever have you. And someone was like, <laughs> you're into that? How dare you be okay. excited? You right. should like something better. Hey, I know you're at this gig, but you should see them live. Yeah, or... Like, it's ne- you're never good enough. Or you're a little too enthusiastic about this. Like, calm down. Why are you wearing the band shirt at the concert? Why are you dancing and screaming? You should be standing in the corner with your arms crossed looking like it doesn't seem cool to you. Mm-hmm. Like, fuck that shit. Like, you need to be disaffected? No, I hate that. Like, be excited. And I'm saying I hate this as somebody who fully in this scene did act like Ramona Flowers. A hundred percent sure. You're too cool to care. I was, because that's the only way that women were allowed to be perceived as cool or allowed to even gain access to those spaces. Yeah. You had to be cool and aloof. If you were exciting or excited, that was too feminine, that was too hyper, there's too much energy, you can't be here. That said, when Ramona and Scott go on like their first date... She is just standing on some stairs and he goes, oh, what are you doing? I thought you were too cool to show up on time, mm-hmm. which means he's thought about whether or not he should show up on time. And everyone else is clearly thinking about how they should be perceived. And literally Ramona's whole character is about how everyone perceives her mm-hmm. and how she doesn't do anything to change their mind. She just kind mm-hmm. of goes through her life just being like, I'm going to do this and it's fine. I think that people 
think Ramona Flowers is trying harder than she is to be cool. I agree. I, I think don't, she just is. I think that she just is. I agree with you completely. And I also find her disgust of Scott being in a band to be like super relatable. Uh-huh. But the thing is like people give her shit for that line where they're like, oh my God, like she just looks so aloof and so whatever. She just got out of an abusive relationship with somebody who works as a record executive. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, she's going to feel some kind of way about musicians. Well, especially Leave her be- alone. Especially because Gideon, like, sucks the lifeblood out of out of bands. Mm-hmm. We see that later with the sex bombs. Well, yeah, because we have Kim. Oh, God, I love you, Kim Pine. Uh-huh. Woman after my own heart. Kim, Kim Pine, a, a marvelous Daria type. Yes. Not, Allison not, to, Pill- not to strip away her autonomy by comparing her to another woman, but she carries that energy. Yes. And the question I had for you was, do you think Kim Pine is actually like this and is this annoyed and hates being places this much? Or is she just like that? Because she's always around Scott and she hates Scott. <laughs> and so the thought that I had is I think like, I think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I think she does definitely have the sardonic humor that's just so innate in her. But I think everything gets heightened when she's around Scott because he brings out like all of her most anxiety induced anger. Mm-hmm. Well, she's also hurt. Yeah, she's very hurt. Because he fucking dumped her. And then didn't give her space. No. They're still in a band. They still hang out. Like, there's no room to heal. No. Again, just Scott sucks. You have to see his dumbass making dumbass mistakes all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but speaking to, like, how Gideon sucks the life out, like, you know, when he signs the sex bombs and he, like, gives them, like, a whole new look... Kim looks like a cat maid. Mm-hmm. Like, she looks like a Japanese girl cat maid. Like, she looks like a fetish object. Which is, Gideon's also does. is like, oh, yeah, smoking hot redhead on drums. It's like, oh, okay. Right, he doesn't give a shit about whether or not she can actually play. He's just like, hot redhead on drums, I can market this. And so much of this movie is also about kind of like the fetish object of geekdom. Like, Ramona Flowers, like, you look at that girl and it's like, I know so many men who fetishize women who look like that. And as somebody who has brightly colored hair, I'm used to being on the receiving end of that. And then it's obviously way more obvious with knives, um, 100% more obvious with knives in the way that, like, geek guys fetishize uh, any sort of Asian woman because of the anime connection. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you even see that with Kim. And, like, Kim is, like, kind of like a like mask to neutral kind of girl. Like she wears she's, mo- she's low key. She's real low key. She wears a lot of like track suits. Like that's kind of her like track jackets. Like yeah. that's a, she's her practical, look. which yeah. is like the, which is the honesty of like an indie scene is practical. Yes. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> um, and yet she still gets fetishized and it's because women existing in these spaces in any way, shape or form are fetishized because they're male dominated Mm -hmm. and you have to be a certain kind of way and you have to look a certain kind of way. And if you look a certain kind of way, you fall under a certain type of archetype and then you have to act that way. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Yes. So um, I want to kind of bring all of this together in a concept, which is the idea of like fandom. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference between being a fan of something and being in the fandom of things, which we would see become significantly more... um, Kind of, kind of broad appeal once Tumblr takes off around this time and maybe another couple of years is that being in a fandom means that you take part in like the dissection and the discussion and the obsession of something that mm-hmm. you're a fan of. And Scott Pilgrim to me is such a fascinating 
thing that has a prominent or at least did have a prominent fandom. I, I don't know how this one's going to kind of age over time because people can't handle Scott as a protagonist. And I don't really know what that's going to mean. But mm-hmm. either way, it's such an interesting dissec- dissection of like men and women or or like boys and girls in, in, in purely like gendered binary senses where really compelling our conversations about characterization and relationships comes out on one side versus guys who don't realize how bad Scott is. And they go, okay, but like in this scene, um, the audio sting is from Legend of Zelda. And they obsess about like the, uh, the object of fandom and that objectification applies to the women. Mm-hmm. And it's just such this, weird mix of two things that are being wildly misread within the same thing by different people. And it's, it's a matter of a kind of where, where your priorities lie, I guess. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree completely. And I think that we also get to have a lot of in-universe commentary on everything going around because of this amazing ensemble cast. So we have Kieran Culkin as Wallace Wells, um, one of my favorite like side characters in any movie. Mm-hmm. I love Wallace because I love having a gay character who does not fall under like the gay tropes that yes. we normally see. Because again, there's n- there's nothing wrong with being like a Yas queen kind of gay. The problem that exists is that that is the only type of gay man that we ever get to see on screen. Certainly up to this point. Especially at this point. That was something that we very, very heavily praised for uh, Nick and Nora last year was Mm -hmm. its portrayal of gay men and how much I loved them. Why does everything have to be so complicated? If you want something bad, you have to fight for it. Step up your game, Scott. Break out the L word. Lesbian? The other L word. Lesbians? It's love, Scott. I wasn't trying to trick you. Hey, buddy, look. If she really is the girl of your dreams, then you have to let her know. You have to overcome any and all obstacles that lie in your path. You can do it. Be with her. It's your destiny. Plus, I need you to move out. What? Yeah, I'm kind of banking on her calling you back so I don't have to evict you and you feel all guilty and shit. So what I love about Wallace is that he is, uh, he, him being gay is so intrinsic to his character. And he does, you know, so many things that like every gay man I've ever known does where he's like very clear about his sexuality. He is, you know, has crushes on straight men. He, you know, the, the, especially during this time, there was the stereotype of like, I'm going to steal your boyfriend. Like that mm-hmm. was really, really common. Um, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. And there's nothing wrong with him as a whole character, he feels fully realized because he's not like, he doesn't feel like a gay stereotype that we had at this time. Right. And I I think that that might also be something that people who come to this movie much later struggle to understand is that like, he's revolutionary Uh in his representation because we just did not have gay male characters that were like this. Certainly not in mainstream movies. God, no. Um, But he's also really funny in like a very subdued way um like he he's antagonizing people constantly he obviously is very much gossiping about scott with stacy bless you anna kendrick Kendrick, making another appearance gonna be a gonna be a dark horse for like most frequent appearances on this podcast yeah she's in franchises Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so we have anna kendrick showing up and like wallace tells her everything and it's one of those time and it's one of those things where like i've seen people criticize wallace to be like oh my god i can't believe like he's so gossipy and it's like 
here's the thing. The stuff that he's gossipy about with Stacy is stuff that like everyone in Scott's life needs to know about to hold him accountable for. Mm -hmm. And like, that's his sister who is one of the only people that evidently he'll listen to. Exactly. Like it's very important for her to know that he's dating a fucking high schooler. It's very important for her to know he's cheating on said high schooler with someone else. Like he, Wallace needs people in his corner to be like the fuck man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. And they have these like really deep moments on this swing set in the snow that just like that's a mood that hits me in my soul. Oh, yeah. I love a swing set date. Well, it's it's a date of um in my in my hometown. The high school is right across the street from the elementary school. So we were right by the playground. So we just would be there after dark. And that was a thing. But also it's the idea of finding the place in your town or your city where no one is. And having this this moment of seclusion where you can actually like take a second and think and reflect and maybe talk to one person mm-hmm. where it's like you've just blocked out the entire world. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the vibes on that swing set in this movie. I, I love them. Yeah. Ours was uh, at 38 Acres. And oh, yeah? uh, 38 Acres is like the old name for it. Like it has an actual name, but no one really called it that. Uh, but 38 Acres is where like the town community center was. But it was also the skate park. It was also the playground. It was also the like little league fields, the soccer fields. Um, And it was across from the junior high over Mm -hmm. like, you know, a patch of nature or whatever. Um, So it was a place that felt like it was its own planet within your own hometown. Sure. um, Because there's just there's nothing around you. And like there's like a couple houses and like you can see houses. So, you, you know, it's a neighborhood. But for the most part, like you're by yourself and like for like cars cannot drive by you. They have to intentionally be going to the park to see you. Mm -hmm. So it feels very much in its own universe. And there's something so like peaceful and soothing about that, especially when you're young and you don't have a lot of options because you don't have your own place. Like, I mean, even that, like, you know, Knives lives with her family. Scott lives with Wallace and Wallace is constantly kicking him out because he needs their the bed that they share. <laughs> they need the bed for sex. And mind you, uh, Scott also lives across the street from his child at home. Yes. Yes, he does. He did not go very far. No. Um, and that's and also, I think, really important to his character. I think so, too. I think it's very important. And I also think that that's also another alluring point of Ramona is that she does have her own place. She has her own job. She has her own method of getting around the world on on rollerblades. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of Ramona and her having her own place, so they have their like sort of little date and then they go back to there and they're cold and Scott's like, cause Scott doesn't have a proper winter coat. He has like a spring jacket that he wears with a hoodie, mm-hmm. like a madman. I did that shit. I, of course you did. You're, you gotta be too cool you to be cold. You gotta be too cool to be cold. Yeah, of course. A hoe never gets cold. <laughs> <laughs> but so he he's like, oh, well, we'll have sleepy time tea, whatever. And then just kind of walks into her bedroom and she's changing. And she's not like, oh, my God, how dare you? It's just kind of like, dude, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And there's a really great shot that you pointed out that I love that he panics and closes his eyes. And then the screen goes black. And then when he takes his hands off of his eyes, she's just right in front of him. It's one of my favorite things because I think it is so fucking romantic because you're seeing Ramona through Scott's eyes for the first time where I think he genuinely is looking at her and like, Oh, I really like this girl. Like, not the idea of her. I like this specific girl. Yes. And I've seen criticism of this scene in how she's not offended that this dude just kind of wandered into her room when she's, like, topless. Or that there's criticism of this scene because there's this 
kind of leery way of like how she's portrayed, but you have to look at it from her perspective. She, she's not getting like the damaged young boy that we see through this point of the movie. She's getting a kind of awkward dopey guy who's nice to her when she's not used to guys being nice to her. Right. He's, he's appealing based on everything she's known about him up to this point. And that matters. And they have, they have these moments where they, Scott's like, Oh, I, I needed this. Like they're not going to have sex. They're just going to lay in bed and maybe cuddle whatever. And he's like, I, I think I needed this. I think he recognizes, even if he doesn't put it into words that he needs like this, post breakup intimacy he need he needs to feel close to someone he needs to kind of get over his thing and it's not necessarily her job to do it but if you approach like post breakup sex or post ugly problems with your ex stuff that you use your sex for it's like so therapeutic mm-hmm. and he can't do that with knives no because she's a child because again he should be dating people his own age i think ramona's maybe a year or two older than him mm-hmm. but still his own age and this is sort of again these moments where he's like i think i need this i need to be close to someone i need to be with someone my age i need to be with someone who has their own place and a job and is mature Mm-hmm. I, I need this, but he doesn't know what this is. He just knows it when he sees it. Correct. And I also have seen the similar critiques of that moment. And I'm going to, I'm going to like lightly push on the people who criticize that scene. Sure. Um, if you are somebody who is not acutely aware of the way that you are fetishized by the entire world around you, then likely, yeah, you would be rightfully mortified if somebody came into your room and saw you without a shirt on. But a girl like Ramona Flowers, and the reason why I identify and like see myself in her in a lot of ways, is Ramona is acutely aware of how boys in the scene view her. Mm -hmm. She is acutely aware of how everyone sees her the second she enters a room. It's one of those things where like, when you feel that so much, the the moments of privacy that you do have, like they also don't feel like intimate or or private or special. Or true, but also you could say that like she doesn't feel threatened by Scott in a way, which like plays into his soft boyism. Mm-hmm. But she invited him into her house on the first date. Yeah. That means she feels at least somewhat comfortable with him. And he's like, I'm not trying to look. I'm sorry. I'm covering my eyes. I'm just cold. Right. And like, I I agree with all of that. But I also think that like Ramona doesn't fucking care because she's so desensitized to this sort of thing at this point. True. It's the same way. Like, this sounds really stupid, but like I was always very, very comfortable in like dressing rooms, whether it was baton, theater, gym class whatever like we like we took swimming in gym class and you have to take a shower before mm-hmm. and after you swim that's like school rules yeah and people would be like so cornered in like into themselves like don't look at me don't see Gonna me change in the, in the bathroom yeah, change stall, in the bathroom stall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like if that's your comfort level like i get it i totally get it um that was never me because i was so used to everybody commenting on my body all the fucking time so it's like I have big tits when I'm wearing a bra. I have huge tits when I don't. Like, nothing about my body changed from what you see wearing clothes to when I'm naked. Uh I'm fat then. I'm fat now. Like, nothing about this changes. Uh 
fine. And I feel like that's very much kind of the same energy that Ramona has of like, a manic pixie dream girl to you when I'm fully clothed. I'm going to be the same fucking fantasy girl that you think if I don't have clothes on. Mm-hmm. Nothing changed here for me. And that is such a difficult experience to explain to people unless it's something that you experience. So I get why people push back on this scene. But also, like, this scene is very important to me mm-hmm. uh, for that reason. Yeah. And, okay, so uh, I, I I was really excited to do this episode because, I first of all, this was the first movie I've ever taken notes on. How about that? Look at you. I had talking points that I had so many. I'm like, I need to write them down or I will forget them. Um, but also I think it's really, really cool that we get to discuss this movie because you and I have wildly different existences in this sort of a universe. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really compelling for conversation. I hope this is interesting for people to listen to because I'm really loving (laughs) that you and I have wildly different interpretations that are both equally true Mm -hmm. based on the fact that like I grew up as an indie boy and you grew up as the fetishized colored hair girl. Yeah. (laughs) Were you just gonna bring the blanket from your bed? I guess. Maybe we should both get under it since we're so cold. What about our tea? I can not have tea. I changed my mind. Changed it to what? From what? I don't want to have sex with the pill girl. Not right now. Oh, okay. It's not like I'm going to send you home in a snowstorm or anything. You can sleep in my bed. And I reserve the right to change my mind about the sex later. Well, this is nice. Just this. It's been like a really long time, so I think I needed this. Whatever it is, so thank you. You're welcome. So let's talk about more of our, uh, our rogues gallery in this thing. Because oh, like, this ensemble's all. cast where we have not really even touched the evil exes. Mm-hmm. Who would you like to start with? Because the first one, he's... he's I the, love Matthew Patel. I think yeah. that he's great. Um, he's just he's the one who has to set the stage, which means he gets uh, he's the opening act. He gets kicked off pretty quick. Yeah, he's the exposition X, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, I love Matthew Patel. I think he's fun. I love that we have an Indian boyfriend and Mm -hmm. that like even his powers kind of come with that flair. His music comes with that culture. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. I love that all of the exes, like there is some sort of like culture around them, which Mm -hmm. I think is really, really interesting. Um, It does not work for me in one instance, but we'll get to it. Um, I love Matthew Patel because I also love his intro of just Scott Pilgrim. Like I I think the delivery. It's so good. (laughs) It's wonderful. And also because of this movie existing in a time capsule, uh, Scott's like, the computer says I have mail, which is strange. And also, like, Amazon. What's Amazon? Right. Oh, my like, God. <laughs> this is just, like, a technologically different world. Yeah, it's very wild to think about an Amazon where you could predict which delivery driver you were getting. It was just a small enough town. It's like, I and, don't know. There's only three, and probably. And deliveries could be made on rollerblades? Yeah. Interesting. It's just, that's the fantasy. We're not doing drones? <laughs> okay. I, I I miss the simpler times. Yeah, seriously. But uh, he he's the first one. He gets beat up pretty quick. He only drops a couple bucks in change when mm-hmm. he gets obliterated. Then we get to our second. Oh, and sweet angel. Something I did not realize until we sat down to record was that uh, the start of the year, we opened with a movie starring Chris Evans in Not Another Teen Movie, and we're mm-hmm. closing the year 
with a different Chris Evans from the opposite end of that decade. Which is crazy pants to me. Like what a what a journey he's been on. Yeah. Um he's incredible. Um Chris Evans is so much funnier than people give him credit for. And I know mm-hmm. we talked about that during Not Another Teen Movie. Yeah, because the material's bad, but his delivery's impeccable. Oh, God, he's so fucking funny. Yeah. Um, this movie lets him play to such strengths um, because, one, he gets to be funny, which is great. Mm-hmm. But, two, he gets to be a movie star because Lucas Lee is, like, such a dickhead movie star. And so he gets to do macho posturing, which is really funny when it comes from him. Not cheesy, that- cheesy action movies that'll ha- run in a marathon on Spike TV. Oh, my God. Which it's doesn't so exist funny. anymore. So um, funny. And he will be a bona fide movie star the following year because he does Captain America. <laughs> and yes. then the Avengers the following year. Mm-hmm. And then ne- it, everything changes forever. So I think that fight's real fun. I, I like that every one of the evil exes who are essentially boss battles, they all have unique different they have uh, unique set pieces different flavors different gimmicks mm-hmm. and this one is like a brawl with stunt doubles oh, and then there's so like good. tony hawk ass shit going on with because the skateboard he's a skater. Uh. i i think it's great um of course this is kind of going to be like the kind of like butch handsome but very pretty boy that wallace would be attracted to and be like by the way i have to go stalk my hetero crush <laughs> right oh god he's so funny and it's just it's a really lovely moment and especially when you look at it in hindsight Um, Something that I have seen mentioned about Scott Pilgrim, which I fully agree with, is they talk about this movie in the same breath as something like Dazed and Confused, Mm -hmm. where they're both very important coming of age stories. But more importantly, they are movies that when you look at the cast, you're like, how the fuck did this happen? Quite honestly, like this movie's even more bonkers than Dazed and Confused when you look at the whole of it. It's wild how many people are in this. Yeah, like Michael Sarah's probably done the least out of every main character. I know. Which is Unfortunately. Um, yeah, there's just so many people doing great work in here, and it just makes me really happy. Also, like, uh, just as a side note, Aubrey Plaza's here, and she's doing all of her, like, Aubrey Plaza of this era stuff, and she's marvelous. Oh, she's so funny. The The addition of having Julie swear but giving her a censor box, brilliant. Love so it. So funny. It's Huge a great fan. gag every single time it happens. Yep. So, uh, up till this point, the first evil ex, Scott can kind of overpower him, because he's like, you know... The, the the gym leader Brock of this one and Brock's a pushover. <laughs> so yeah, he can overpower him. He cannot overpower Chris Evans and has to outsmart him. And it kind of gets into these things where he has to get really wily with his tactics from like the second X onward. Yeah, he can't just be button mashing. Like that's not going to no. work. You have to use tactics. I mean, it is like a fighting game in that way where it's like, yeah, Eddie Gordo can flip around, but it only works so long and then you get your ass whooped. Totally. And so then we move forward and we have Evil X number three. And Evil mm-hmm. X number three gets uh, a little bit more complicated, mm-hmm. which I quite enjoy because this is when we get the introduction also of Scott's ex, mm-hmm. Envy Adams, played by Brie Larson. A, who, a different Marvel a different Cinematic Marvel's, Universe actor. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have Captain Marvel here. Um, I love Brie Larson in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think that Envy Adams is like such a scary, hot, Girl, like, love that so much. I love her rendition of Black Sheep. It's my favorite song in the entire movie. Yeah, um, it's probably the best one, even yeah. if I do love the uh, the opening number that then comes back for the final fight. Yeah, it's great, but that fucking Metric song is so good. It's my favorite Metric <laughs> song. As someone who's pretty lukewarm on Metric, that song rules. <laughs> I love Metric. Um, but I love the Envy Adams character. I love that Knives is also obsessed with her, mm-hmm. because I think that's also like a weird thing that's not explored in movies very often. 
of like the people who exist in the scene and you know people who are really fucking famous. Yeah. Um, and having to like, you treat them like people because you know them. True. Uh, like I get this sometimes. Wait, read, 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 read their blog. Yeah, oh yeah. That's the thing. It's like, that's the difference. It's like Knives reads her blog versus like, Scott dated her, mm-hmm. and obviously Ramona dated Todd, um, who is now Envy's boyfriend and in, in her player. band, bass player in her yeah. band. Um, so they know each other, and like Julie is constantly butting in, like, "So what are you doing?" Da, 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 da. And Envy's like, "Shut the fuck up, Julie!" And like mm-hmm. keep cutting her off because they know each other as people. But then you get Knives, who's like really excited about it. It makes me think of like it sounds really dumb, but like anytime I interview somebody for work. The people that I like went to high school with get so fucking excited about it, and they're like, "This is the coolest thing in the world." And you're like, "This is just a Tuesday." And I was like, "This is a Tuesday." Uh huh. Um, and that's not to like try to sound pretentious or whatever, but like that it's that's just your job. That's just my job. Like yeah. that's what it is. Like there are people that I know. Um, I'm not going to say names, but like there are people that I know that I talk to like daily that if people knew they'd be like what and like freak out about it and it's like no i get it but they're also human beings so i love that we get to see that dynamic because it is again it's such a specific dynamic i mean true also the idea that knives would become obsessed with this band because uh, especially in like the rock scene you didn't have a lot of women who were fronting bands so like when Evanescence is there or Paramore is there, it's a big fucking it's a deal. Big fucking Especially deal. if you are like a young girl looking for looking for something that you can go, that's it. That's what I want. That's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. Yes, a hundred percent that. Like people give me so much shit because I will proudly admit that when I was in like eighth grade, yeah, Evanescence was my favorite band. I've seen the three separate posters you had in oh, your childhood yeah. bedroom. I absolutely did. I loved Amy <laughs> Lee. And people would be like, oh my God, I can't believe you liked Evanescence. They're like so not cool. And like, it's like... L- it's like boring they're, goth They're music. overplayed. I liked them before they got hit. <laughs> like it was very much that kind of energy. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Are you going to tell the 13-year-old goth kid with an alto belt who had never heard somebody sing like her on the radio, tell her she can't be a fan of her because that band's not cool enough? Uh-huh. Go fuck yourself. Like, yeah. no. And yes, in hindsight, I can look back and be like, wow, I was 12 years old with some big feelings listening to Evanescence. That doesn't change the fact that that music changed my life. And it changed what I thought was capable for me as a vocalist. Like, that's mm-hmm. important shit i agree and so it makes total sense that knives would be into clash of demon head like totally it's like how i really loved the darkness because you could have men singing in a tremendous high voice and Mm -hmm. also being like so fucking effeminate yeah (laughs) like cartoonishly unbelievably effeminate in a way that totally like scratched the exact itch i needed as like a 12 13 year old absolutely absolutely so then I we still get love the darkness they're awesome go <laughs> they see are. them live they're so good <laughs> they are we saw them live not that long ago and it was great um so then we also you know we have todd the evil ex and todd's thing is that he's a vegan and he's like an insufferable asshole vegan mm-hmm. like stick his nose all the way up in the air vegan and that's also a subvertive thing because we weren't shitting on vegans yet. Like, nope. we weren't there yet. <laughs> nope, but that is such a, uh, in the scene of, like, hipsterdom. Right, it, like, the... It, it's, he's doing it purely to be snooty, which we find out when he gets busted by the vegan police, which, like, there's nothing wrong with being vegan. Like, go for it. But he's clearly doing it for status or just for literal power mm-hmm. because he's like, what, chicken's not vegan? <laughs> He wants to feel morally superior to other people. Like yeah, that's that's yeah. his crime. His crime is not 
being a vegan. There's nothing wrong with being a vegan. He's a Some vegan of my with friends motives. are vegans, actually. <laughs> so I think I can say this. Yeah. Uh, no, but like <laughs> the crime is not that Todd's a vegan. The crime is that Todd uses his veganism as a weapon. And like mm-hmm. people who do that are assholes. Agreed. Like anybody who does that for anything is an asshole. If you start a sentence with, well, as a insert whatever here to try to shit on somebody, you are an asshole. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to explain that. So yes, the vegan police shows up and, you know, we get Thomas Jane, another person. Wonderful cameo, one of the only adults in this movie. One of the only adults in this movie. Technically MCU? Not really, but technically MCU. (laughs) For that one time he was the Punisher. Yeah, I don't Uh, (laughs) that's Marvel, it's not MCU. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's pre-MCU, but like, yeah, he's there. He's been in a Marvel He's been in he's been in stuff. Uh, so yeah, Thomas Jane's there. He's great. It's lovely. Big fan. Always happy to see him. Um, and then we move on to the fourth Evil X. This is where I have a problem with how the culture is represented. Hi, Mae Whitman. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. I love <laughs> Mae Whitman. I love Roxy Richter as a character. She's great. I think she's great. Um, the fact that By Furious has like the longevity that it does, incredible, wonderful. The fashion she wears, that fucking like that, boob that window on, on the chest hoodie. of the hoodie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great. The Such hoodie a great also look. has like I think cat ears or something like that. Yes, which was not like a thing that you could just buy in Hot Topic at the time. You had to like make that. You had to sew those on. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I love Roxy. I think that she's great. Um. There are a couple things that I want to point out that I think are really important. So one. I love how angry she gets Mm -hmm. when Ramona says it was a phase because here's the thing. Ramona had a phase. Ramona is not bisexual. Ramona had a phase. She experimented and it wasn't for her. There's nothing wrong with that. She's allowed to be straight. But the fact that she says it didn't mean anything is like so fucking hurtful, Mm -hmm. especially to Roxy, who's like this because it did mean something to her. Ramona meant something to her, but it Mm -hmm. was not reciprocated. And a lot of people struggle with that scene because they're like, that's really shitty. That's discounting. That's biphobic. And it's like, here's the thing. It's not actually biphobic because Ramona's not bisexual. Mm -hmm. She's straight who tried something and it wasn't for her. It's allowed to not be for her. Yeah. She could have handled it better. Of course. Well, she was also on the defensive. Yeah. She's She's kind of ambush. She's, she's about to get her ass kicked. Um, and, but she's, she's not, she's not bi. She's straight. And she's allowed to be straight. And uh, that's, I know, hard for some people. However, the more difficult thing about this scene is the way that they handle bisexuality as a sexuality. And it's very difficult the way that Scott interprets it. uh, Because Ramona says it was a phase. You had a sexy phase? Scott's response is a sexy phase. Uh Um, That's fucking biphobic. So that, here you go. There's a tally mark there. True, but that is the most, like, 22-year-old boy in the year 2010 shit that he could possibly utter. Mm -hmm. That is factually accurate yeah and it's gross and like so again we're not giving scott a pass here but like that's the world we were in Mm -hmm. where that was very very common like the 2010s this is when like the term bar sexual started getting really popular Mm -hmm. which is the idea of like straight girls who specifically were into like making out with other girls at bars because it would entice and get straight men all worked up because it's fun and like there, there's a lot of moments like that that makes this movie feel like it's time capsule. Um, not not to steer the conversation in too much of a different direction, but we have plenty of those. Like, Knives is really insistent on calling Ramona fat. Even though she's not she's fat. She's 
totally the same size as anybody else in this movie, but she's going for the words that will hurt her the most. Mm -hmm. So she's just like, she's fat. And just freaking out during like her her hair dying session during during her manic moment where she dyes her hair because that's what that is. Yeah. You you uh, you get dumped and then you go ahead and have to change your hair. Yeah, you dye your hair and you get bangs, which is yeah. what she did. She had bangs to start, but you know she cut her hair off. Yes, there's a lot of moments like that. Um, there's also this recurring thing throughout the movie of um. Men punching women in the face. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like <laughs> that's kind of what this fight is where Scott doesn't want to hit a woman because she's soft. Right. And, and so, so it's Ramona like, that's puppets all. him. Yeah. So it's like that's also not helpful. Like you should just not want to hit women in general. You should not want to hit anybody. But the 2010s was also when the like quote unquote equal rights, equal fights movement started happening mm-hmm. where people were like, uh, if we're going to have equality among the genders, I should be able to punch people, which like, I'm so glad that we've unpacked that to realize that's not actually progressive. You fucking weirdos. No. Um, that said, I don't know if this was a thing for you, but certainly when I was in high school, it was very common for women to strike men. Like, Women who were in abu- like relationships with their boyfriends and treated them like crap, they would hit their boyfriends in like math class all the time. Yeah, that's just like that was that, w- that's just, weirdly a common thing, that's and it's just not really okay. Gross <laughs> across the board, and that's I think where some of this hap- where some of that was born out of, where like a guy would see a guy get hit and he wouldn't do anything about it. it was just like, oh, I won't hit a woman. And it's like I'll beat her ass if she hit me, and then you jump to like ten degrees. Yeah, like that's that's I feel like where this was sort of formed out of yes and so like again it's like a really complicated thing to address or acknowledge and i will say this as loud as the microphones will handle it i will get very close we are not condoning violence cool we got that on the record yeah but that was very much what the idea of progress was at the time Mm -hmm. at that time it was Women are just as tough as men. Look, they can fight the same way that men did. Um, You know, there's a line that Wallace has when they're fighting where he yells, kick her in the balls. It was super common in like 2010 for girls who were being tough to say, suck my dick. They were not being transphobic. They were not attempting to like be horrible and like genital critical or any of that. That's just how people were. That was quote unquote equality. It wasn't right. We've unpacked it. It's been a decade. Uh Uh-huh. But that's how it was at the time. And we can't be ahistorical about this shit. I was so attracted to a girl in high school who would have told someone to suck her dick. Not in like a literal sense, but as a way of just being like, that's right. You're tough. (laughs) I liked that as a quality. But like, I'm so, I'm not offended by that now in 2022. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I was that girl in high school. I fully admit that I was that girl in high school because I was, like, tougher and I had, like, this weird exterior. So, yes, I was overachieving Tracy Flick and goth and whatever. But I was also the same girl that when people would say things like, oh, nice tits, I'd go, suck my dick, Derek, and, like, mm-hmm. yell at them. <laughs> like, that's who I was. Yeah, like, honestly, in the year 2010, it probably would have been seen as misogynistic for Scott to say, like, no, she's soft. I can't hit her. A hundred percent, yes. That's it probably was. what that was like delivered t- to be, where it's like, oh no, he's a fucking idiot because he won't fight a girl who's trying to kill him. Yes, that's a hundred percent what this this scene is doing. Which, like, that's that's a that's a thing about like action movies in particular is in an action movie you're allowed to have like man versus woman fights because it's fiction. In professional wrestling, you can have intergender wrestling 
because it's fiction mm-hmm. and it's cool and I love that. Mm-hmm. But that's where you have to then pull this out of like the fantasy scape and put it into reality and how these rules don't apply in the same way. Correct. A hundred percent. Yes. And I want to make it like very clear as well that I'm not defending the use of girls saying suck my dick because that's a thing that I did. I don't want it to come across that way. I'm just saying like I own up to that and me as a 30 something in 2022 I'm not going to say stuff like that because now I can say things like eat my box which is Mm. it doesn't have the same oomph to it as suck my dick because dick's like fuck it's it's just really it's really sharp and punctuated and it's great it's it's the CK pop the pop of that the thing of certain cis women just saying like suck my dick it feels so much like a like a hometown girl who's who's still got like chunky highlights and hasn't really evolved much since high school Mm -hmm. where I'm like oh we're still doing that huh yeah so like again it's it's more quaint yeah not a thing that I say now (laughs) nor do I condone the fact that I said it then but it, as is as is the onus of this show, we're not going to lie about how fucked up a culture was at the time a movie oh, came especially out. Especially in the aughts. Oh, the aughts were terrible, and yeah. like we're we're getting our way out of the aughts with this movie. But like, there's there's a lot of residuals. Yeah, of course. Um. So then our next evil exes are five and six. We have twins. They don't have dialogue. They don't have dialogue. But they have a cool like guitar hero battle. Which is pretty which, sick. Like it raises the stakes <laughs> from the base off that they had earlier in the mm-hmm. movie, which is tight. Um, and like, this is just, this is cool. This is where I had to ask, sit down and ask you like, what is another movie outside of Speed Racer, which is, God, I wish Speed Racer wasn't as racist as it is, mm-hmm. but what is another movie outside that from like, say this era onward that looks like Scott Pilgrim? Because nothing, nothing looks like the Scott Pilgrim. visuals carries the showdown between X's five and six because there's no character. There's no dialogue. The conflict is what we're physically seeing. And it looks cool because it's dragons fighting like a King Kong. But like nothing quite looks like this. It's so stylish. And I love Edgar Wright so much. I haven't seen Last Night in Soho. But aside from that, like dude has no misses on his filmography for me. Even Baby Driver, which is fine, isn't bad. It's just bad because some of the people in it are awful. (laughs) Right. But the uh, the... Kataya Nagi twins, I wish that they had more to do. I wish that they had more personality, but they don't. I think the movie would drag a bit if we gave even more exposition to characters that that's, come and go. Yeah, that's the problem is that their showdown comes in kind of like the natural downswing. And it just sucks because it comes at the expense of like two Asian twins. Well, and yeah. like that's shitty. In 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 pro wrestling terms, because I talked about intergender wrestling, like you're putting the death spot. Mm-hmm. Right before the main event, when everyone's like saving their energy before the big showdown, it's the bathroom break match. Yeah, which and is that just like sucks. it sucks, but every wrestling card has one, mm-hmm. and that's that's what happens. It's how it's how it benefits like going out with a bang. Yes. Um, so we've got all that going on, and then we finally get to Gideon, who's Jason Schwartzman. He's he's your big boss battle. Um, I think he's great. I think this is when we finally start to see like everything that Ramona has been through that led her to this point. Um, we also, I, I, cause I didn't want to gloss over this, but we also get some like real shitty comments out of Scott because now they're starting to fight a little bit more within each other mm-hmm. and starting he, to figure out like, is this worth it? Uh-huh. Um, cause like after he fights Roxy, um, and a thing I didn't even talk about because I like brain farted it. So I'm bringing it back. My bad. Sorry. Um, I hate the fact that he, he kills Roxy or defeats Roxy. Um, and it's sexualized. Mm-hmm. Uh, she orgasms to death. Uh, fucking hate that. I fucking hate that. Mm-hmm. Um, why is the one woman X 
her death have to be something that is also sexualized because she's bisexual and that's what we did. Mm -hmm. Uh, 2010 was a terrible time in the way that bisexuality was overly fetishized and sexualized, especially by men who considered themselves quote unquote progressive. They They, thought, they thought that they were cool uh because, oh yeah, my girlfriend's bisexual and it's fine. I don't care that she has sex with other women. As long as she brings a woman home. As long as she brings her home. I think it's really cool. Uh Sometimes she'll tell me about it. But those same guys would like shit blood if she was like, hey, I'm thinking about seeing another guy. Yeah, these are the people that you would see. I remember being on like OkCupid and it would be like married couple looking for a third. Just some fun stuff. Fucking unicorn hunters. Get out of here. Exactly. It was so common. Yeah. Absurdly common. It's still very common. I'm sure it is. I'm not on dating sites anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's it's still very common uh, because I follow a lot of the the queer discourse on TikTok, so I see a lot of this. But once we do get to Gideon, though, we get to see Ramona's been through some shit. Mm-hmm. Like she's been severely damaged in a way that Scott doesn't fully understand because this entire time he's been like blaming her for a lot of things. Like even as a comment, is there anyone at this party you haven't slept with? Which mm-hmm. is such fucking shit. Like that. Like speaking of clerks, that is try not to suck any dick on your way through the parking lot. Like that is. Mm-hmm. What is happening here, which is just so shitty. Well, it's 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 a it's a guy going through some hard things. And again, it's like saying Ramona's fat. It's like, what's the thing I can say that will hurt you the most? Mm-hmm. And so as Scott is fighting with Gideon, you know, Knives shows back up and she tries to fight Ramona because in her brain she's like, Well, you took my boyfriend, so now mm-hmm. you have to die. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she she's really shitty. At one point she calls her a slut, which like Again, it's 2010. We were real, Makes real sense. down with that at yep. that time. Yep. Um, but we finally get Scott doing the one thing he's been needing to do this whole movie, which is intervening and being fucking honest, mm-hmm. where he's like, Knives, you don't have a problem with Ramona. You have a problem with me. I cheated on you. I hurt you. I did this. If you're going to have an issue, have that issue with me. And to me... That is the completion of Scott's arc. It is not defeating evil exes. It is not winning battles. It is not doing anything. It is fucking ending a battle by being like, no, this is on me. Because it is the first fucking time that he has held himself accountable in any way, shape, or form. Because the entire movie, he pushes the buck in any other direction to deflect from his own accountability. And this is when he finally takes control of the situation and owns up to being such a piece of shit. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't worry, I know what I'm doing. Steven, the new lineup rocks. You guys sound way better without me. Young Neil, you have learned well. From this point forward, you will be known as Neil. And Kim, I'm sorry about everything. I'm sorry about me. Scott Pilgrim! Hey, buddy! Save it! You're pretentious. This club sucks. I've got beef. Let's do it. Wait, 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 wait. You want to fight me? For her? No. I want to fight you for me. Scott earned the power of self-respect. I I have a question for you about about exes. So I've I've been seeing discussions pop up for the last couple years about um, people who say like, hey, if you have if you don't talk to any of your exes, then there might be something toxic about you because, you know, X, Y or Z reason. Like, why can you not maintain any kind of 
personal uh, platonic relationship with someone who used to matter that much to you. And for me, I always see these discussions. And I'm like, well, most of my exes were, they cheated on me or they were, you know, abusive or they were, were bad for various reasons. And I think that we're, we're, we're overcompensating at, at this point in, in common discussions of stuff like this, mm-hmm. right? Where people were saying like, oh, I'm not friends with all, any of my exes or you shouldn't be friends with your exes or all my exes are crazy or any kind of grab bag of things to now being like, but what about this? And I'm like, well, it's not universal. Exes are complicated. Mm-hmm. Relationships you have with people are complicated and they change and that's often why they end. Mm-hmm. How, how, how do you feel about that either personally or broad scope? So personally... I'm not friends with any of my exes with the exception of, like, people who I wouldn't even have considered me dating them. Like, mm-hmm. they're people I've slept with, um, people that I was, like, casual with, but nobody that was, like, very seriously, like, a partner sure. to me. I'm not friends with anybody who's ever been that serious in my life. And it's unfortunately because all of them ended in really devastating, terrible sometimes escaping from abuse ways. Mm-hmm. I No, I have no patience for those people in my life. And... In terms of, like, a broader scope, I think that it is definitely person to person and situation to situation. I know plenty of people who still have really great relationships with their exes. I mean, there's plenty of people that do that because they are, you know, co-parenting. So you've got that sort of thing going on. But even taking that out of the equation... If you ended a relationship with somebody because it just wasn't working or like it just you were going in two different directions or, you know, your lives were going in two different directions because you can be so in love with somebody and have so much chemistry with them and have so much of a connection. But if you want different things out of life, then you probably shouldn't be with that person. Like Mm -hmm. I know plenty of people that I went to college with who we went to college in like a, you know, a very rural area. Mm -hmm. And some of them wanted to stay in those rural areas and their partners were like, I don't want to be in the cornfields. I want to move to the city. I want to see the world. I want to do things. And they're like, well, I don't want to do that because all my family's here. And it's like, cool, then we're not going to be together. We're going to separate. individual wants and desires. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that doesn't mean that like, oh, no, true love. It's like, if it's true love, you'll make it work. Like, stop buying into that Hallmark bullshit. Like, Mm -hmm. compatibility in terms of, like, lifestyle is just as important as, like, that that chemical connection that you have with people. Mm -hmm. So I think in those instances, I know plenty of people who are still friends with their exes that way. I think that's perfectly healthy. I know some people who've actually become friends with their exes later in life that did have really terrible relationships because like they worked through their shit and then met at different times in their lives. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to date you again, but like, yeah, I'll share a drink with you. We'll share some stories at the bar around our friends about when we dated, when we were in our early twenties, but like that hurt is still there So, no, I'm not going to date you again. But, like, yeah, we can share space together. We can be friends. That's fine. Um, But I do think that it's really fucked up when people put the onus on another person to be like, hey, if you're not friends with any of your exes, there's something wrong with you. Because it feels very victim-blamey to me. Absolutely. Because a lot of people who are not friends with their exes are not friends with their exes for a very fucking good reason. And there could be a lot of those reasons. A hundred million reasons. I agree with everything you're saying. I just think that particularly in queer circles, uh, I'm seeing a lot of discussions come up where people will say, 
oh, if you're not friends with any of your exes or don't even talk to any of your exes, I don't know if I trust you. Maybe you're the problem. Yeah. And I'm and like, like, I don't I don't like that. I don't like that this is becoming such a common thing. I don't thing. like it either. And I understand that, like, especially in queer circles, being friends with your exes is really common because a lot of times, like, that is your community. Sure. Is that because queer people, percentage-wise, we just don't have as many people in our close proximity you are going to be forced to share space with a lot of your exes. So you should probably get to a point where like you can at least be civil with them. I understand the mindset behind it, but also it is super fucked up to tell somebody, Oh, Hey, you've had exes that have like cheated on you or physically abused you or like emotionally manipulated you. Yeah. There's something wrong with you. If you can't be friends with them. Mm -hmm. No, that's a fucked up mentality. And it's also one that's coming from an extreme place of privilege where if you are privileged enough to say that, like, Oh, I'm friends with all of my exes. Good Good, for you for for never having been in an abusive fucking relationship. Yeah, like, there's a reason Ramona's not close to any of her exes. Right. Like, because the exes that come back, like, she even talks about, like, Matthew Patel, she dated in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. Like. (laughs) Dude dude hasn't moved on. He hasn't moved on. And, like, they dated before they were teenagers. Uh Uh-huh. So, like, that is, like, a whole scope that I think gets ignored in this movie a lot. Because, like, the evil exes show up, like, in their form as they are now. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I guess she dated all of these people, like, in her 20s. And it's like, no. She's been dating them since she was, like, 12, which means she cured seven people over, like, 10 years. Right. <laughs> which is, like, nothing. But, you know, we, we get towards our climax. And, you know, it's it's a it's a hard climax because it's a lot of self-realization that is long fucking overdue. Mm -hmm. Now it's time to like nut up or shut up, you know? This is the time where it's like, hi, are you either going to step up to the occasion or are you going to be like a whiny little bitch about it, Scott? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he he grows. He he becomes an adult. He learns things. He ends up getting two different power-ups because he dies because he gets a life, which I love that as writing. I do too. I think it's great. It's just like, ooh, that's 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 a nice little nugget you can only pull off once. Like if you tried to write that now, it wouldn't work. (laughs) And so NPR did one of their pop culture happy hours uh, a couple years ago in honor of the film's 10-year anniversary. And they had like a roundtable discussion, which I found was really interesting. And um, one of them is their music editor who talked and he he's a black man and he talked about this movie and like what it you know means to him. And I really wanted to add these quotes here because I think that it's fantastic. Sure. Um, and his name is Dowd T- Tyler Amin. I'm probably butchering that. I've never actually heard it. I've only actually read it. Um, but he was talking about how the first time that he saw it, he he left the theater and he said, I was kind of like, I think I liked that. And over time, I sort of found that I couldn't quit it. And I went back and I rewatched scenes from it over and over again. And it sort of became a late night comfort watch. And I think the thing that sticks with me about it is that in many ways, it's a romantic comedy with all of the trouble that that brings. But you're aware from the very start that the hero sucks, that he's the worst. But I also recognize that maybe one reason why I'm able to enjoy it so much is that I'm not in the movie. It has no black characters. If Knives Chow was black, there would be lots of jokes about that, I'm sure, at the time, and it would have made me itch a lot more. But the thing that I thought about watching it last night getting ready to talk to y'all is that, in a way, I am in this movie because I've been a 22-year-old cisgender straight dude, and the thing that I recognize in it 
even as just this aspect where to me, it's just about like loving it and more like kind of finding it useful because it can be really gutting to see some of your worst moments reflected back at you. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's an extreme way, but I think if you're a young, horny dude who still has a lot of growing up to do, you want excuses for your romantic life to feel epic and like a conquest. And you don't want to just woo your partner. You want to win them. And so if Scott's taught me anything over the past 10 years, it's that it is a great example of the kind of personality that you hope to one day grow out of. The main thing that's changed for me is that I've come to understand why certain things about this story and film and the main character would turn people off, but it's a net positive for me. Absolutely. And like, that's the thing with growing up. It's, it's unlearning things. It's not just about like improving yourself. It's about tearing down the things so that you can do, put better stuff on the foundations of where they were. Agreed. And I think that when we talk about this movie, we talk so much about like teen movies and coming of age movies as being time capsules of the time period. This is also a time capsule of a very specific window in your like early 20s where you still have so much growing up to do. Like he's not quote unquote come of age yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's living on his own. He's in a band. He's doing his own thing. He's in between jobs. But at the same time, he's a block away from home. He's not branched out yet. He's basically operating at a high school level because mm-hmm. he has the same like hotshot like factoid to impress Knives, a 17-year-old, as he does with Ramona about Pac-Man. And it doesn't work with her. He can't mm-hmm. keep doing the same shit and just kind of like plucking one thing out of a situation, rinse, cycle, repeat. And I think it's important to have this moment kind of distilled where it's like, yeah, A lot of people in their early 20s fucking suck. Mm -hmm. While they're trying to figure things out on this like selfish path to self-discovery, they hurt a lot of people in their wake. And it's okay to recognize, wow, when you were a work in progress, you fucking sucked. You were not a good person to be around and Mm -hmm. you hurt people. And it's okay to understand that. And like, hopefully you should grow out of it. You should make amends for the people that you've hurt. Mm -hmm. You should try to do that. Or in some instances, fucking leave them alone. Yes. Because you you don't need to be intruding into their lives. So I I, yeah, all of that. So so a thought that I have that I actually really would like to bring up with you is that um, I was pretty harsh on a film like The Craft. Not because of the film itself, but because um, a lot of people misremembered the characters and the themes mm-hmm. and took it in a direction that the movie does not represent. Correct. Um, I think that happens for boys in this film. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't see the same graces being paid towards it because mm-hmm. we sort of expect more of boys because they're in the, the power position mm-hmm. and because they're the ones who, you know, hurt the women in their lives. And I don't know how to emotionally handle these two things because I was I was I've refined my thoughts on the craft over like the last two years like I'm much Mm -hmm. better at speaking about why I don't think that movie works for me and I don't like how people digest that movie Mm -hmm. versus this movie which I'm kind of very defensive of especially because it's actually tackling the themes head on which I think is the main conceit for me which is People just took completely opposite things. They they, they turned the craft into what they wanted to versus people who wrongfully ignore the bad things about what this movie is actually saying. I agree. And for those who were like, I have no idea about the craft. It's one of our earlier episodes. You got to dig like first 10 or something like that. Yeah, you've got to dig back there for that episode. Yeah. Um, But I agree with you. I think that there is not any grace or leeway for any sort of problematic boy in movies, which I think is 
in my opinion, extremely anti-feminist. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that, like, <laughs> we really should be more forgiving of boys. Like, no, I'm not saying that shit. Um, I don't want people putting words in my mouth, which is why I'm making a caveat as, mm. as I'm talking about this. Um, but what I do think is very unfair is that you're absolutely right. We do expect more from boys in coming-of-age movies. We don't allow them to be messy. People should be expected to be messy in a coming-of-age movie, and it is completely unrealistic to think that somebody should be in a coming-of-age movie and not be a fucking disaster. Mm -hmm. um, that's why coming-of-age movies are so heartfelt and also why they're so hard to watch because it is a reminder of that time period in all of our lives where we were fucking messy. Also, like, what's the point of having a coming-of-age movie if your shit's already together? Exactly. Like, that's, no. It's like starting the hero's journey at the end. Yes. And, like... What the hell? <laughs> one of the things that I like about this movie is I like that I start with a protagonist that I'm told from the movie and every character in the movie, hey, this guy sucks. And I get to watch him learn to suck less. Mm -hmm. Like, that to me is extremely hopeful. Yeah. And I think, uh, I, I, I don't really know if I would want a sequel from this movie. I really like it as an, a distilled thing. If, there, if you want more Scott Pilgrim, then there's other media that you can turn to for, like, an extension of this story. But I like this as, like, a distilled thing mm -hmm. that feels hopeful and... He doesn't gain the power of love. He gives the power of self-respect. Right. Which and I like, think is what he needed. <laughs> that's more powerful. And then like you get this Zelda 2 fake out where he has to fight like Dark Scott. Like yeah, Neg Nega, Nega Scott. Scott. Um, and like that's cool. And then it just, it's the most Michael Sarah line of just being like, no, it's kind. We're going to go up for pancakes. And We're going to get brunch. Yeah, it's it's the that is the Michael Sarah of previous films for me. And I wish that Scott didn't end up with either Knives or Ramona at the end of this film. That's how I feel, too. I wish that all of them were single. I'm very glad he doesn't end up with Knives because, one, again, she's a high schooler. But when she gives him the line of, like, I'm too cool for you, you're right. She is. You are too cool for him. <laughs> she's she's much more honest about her things, which, like, he has better chemistry with her. But he's leaving that part of himself behind. Yeah. He's like evolving into like, yeah, you can still like Pac-Man. You can still like music. You can do whatever you want. But you can't be this version of you anymore. Right. So like they had better chemistry than him and Ramona. But I also don't think he should be with Ramona. I think both of them should just be single. Ramona deserves a fucking break. Yeah. <laughs> She's been through enough. Which, like, the original version of this movie did not have him ending up with her, right? I think it had him ending up with Knives, and then people didn't like that ending, so then it changed with him ending up with Ramona. I don't know if people would have liked him ending up with neither. I don't think so either. I think, like, from a film standpoint, I understand why he ends up with Ramona, but I do think the more enjoyable ending... I think if this movie were made today... It would end with them being single, but I think in 2010, people were not at a place yet where they would have accepted him not getting the girl. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember around this time, maybe like 2013, I, w I was dating two people and they were like, well, you have to pick one. And I'm like, why is this suddenly on me? This was not the agreed to thing. Why are we changing the rules? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to pick neither. And they got mad. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Um yeah, I, I think that from like, you know, a poetic standpoint, I get why he ends up with Ramona. And I mean, Knives has the great line of you've been fighting for her all along, mm -hmm. which like it makes sense in the world of this video game. Narratively, it's satisfying. Right. But thematically, thematically, we can do better. Ramona deserves to be single and like live her fucking life. Mm -hmm. um, if this was a proper indie film, instead of just like a big budget indie film, she would have absolutely stayed single. Totally. 
You hit the nail on the head there, though. This isn't an indie movie. This is a movie that came from a studio and had money. You can't have those provocative endings. You no. have to have a satisfying ending. You that have to will recoup make... a lot of money on this guy. Yeah. This thing costs like $60 million. <laughs> yeah, and it uh, didn't. I mean, I feel like it has in probably merchandising in the future. In like, the long run, In the long yes, run. But at the box yeah. office, no. No, it did not. Which is a shame because I think that it is genuinely a really wonderful film. But I also think that S- Scott Pilgrim is one of those movies that is going to be really inaccessible to people who were not around in this time period because, you know, like we said earlier in the show, every five years people rediscover this movie and like new generations discover this movie and they don't know what to make of it. And it's because like this world just doesn't exist anymore. And it's not only that this world doesn't exist anymore. We also are really, really bad at talking about this time period and how fucking messy and chaotic it was. And people are not honest about how it was because I Mm -hmm. think they're afraid of like, oh, this is kind of like that point where we didn't really have social media yet. So I can kind of pretend like I was cooler or nicer or funnier or more affirming or less prejudiced or whatever, because there's no documentation of it online. So I can like formulate who I really was as a teenager Mm -hmm. when it would be a lot easier if all of us kind of sat down with Gen Z and were like, here's how it really was. Yeah. Here's how it really fucking was. Here's why free Britney is a thing. Yeah. Um, One one of the (laughs) things that I point to is like, Hey, do you really want to know what the aughts was like in the most distilled, disgusting package? That's not that far off from this. Uh, Go watch Panty and Stocking. The, uh, the one season anime that's apparently getting a sequel 10 years later. Mm -hmm. Um, It is vile from its humor because it is the most like intense edgy we hate women but and sexualize women main character kind of shit you could imagine mm-hmm. but the animation's beautiful yeah <laughs> it's it's the most perfect version of that but i think when it comes to scott pilgrim i'm gonna let you ask me the question and then i will give my my final feelings on it okay deal scott pilgrim versus the world is asking you to the prom is it a yes a no a maybe or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own i am saying yes with the caveat that I'm not sure I want anybody to send this on its on their own. Explain. So I think this movie's hard in terms of like legacy. I, I but I want people to sit with it because this is a specific time and it's a specific part of growing up. And it's so delicate and intricate while being very messy, very honestly messy. Mm-hmm. And I think that because of what this movie's about. Um, the fact that it's like so video gamey and colorful, the fact that, um, you know, generally films of this ilk that are like PG-13 are targeted towards like a teen demographic. I want people to formulate an opinion on this one. I want them to either sit with it and think about it and either come up with like a yes or a no or like, you know, it has its moments. But this movie is not for teens. As much as they try to push it towards teens, this is about being a young 20 something. Mm-hmm. And it's so honest about dating in your young 20s. Mm-hmm. And I think it does it so much better than any other romantic comedy or like romantic drama or anything else. And honestly, before we sat down to rewatch this movie for me, because it's been maybe five or six years, I was fully expecting to walk into it and be like, huh, it's stylish, but like Edgar Wright can do better. And no, I walked away with like way better feelings than I was prepared for. So... Yeah, I, I I want people to sit with this one. I want them to really think about it. And I think that's one reason that this episode ran a bit longer than we were probably planning mm-hmm. on it. But I'm okay with that because I think we 
I think we had good discussions. Hey, we're also we're we're going out of 2022 with a bang. Yeah. So so does that make sense why I don't want anyone to send it on its own? Yes, it does make total sense because I agree with you. I think this is a movie that you need to watch and have fun with, but also allow yourself to be uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Like that's part of it because being an in your early 20s is fucking uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, friends, I think that takes us out on Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And we want to thank you as always for listening and for your support this year. We hope that next year brings you everything that you could have ever possibly dreamed of everything on your dream board. I hope it manifests. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at this ends at prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocit underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. And Harmony, I know you have been waiting quite some time to recommend this band, and you planned it out to be associated with Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Who do you want people to listen to this week? So I was planning on hitching this indie band to this episode long before their album actually came out. Um, I'm shouting out to the album Hyperpunk by Q-Bomb. Based on their early releases, I'm like, oh, it's got to be this one. And then I just felt more assured in it as time went on. So Q-Bomb uses a lot of like electropunk and industrial and so almost pseudo nude metal influences through like chiptune based punk. And I think that having a band come out the gate like so fully realized as this is so cool because they have phenomenal music videos for an indie release. Um, Their video for Poison Pop is kind of Scott Pilgrim like energy, but with these animated baseball team that was designed to look like the monsters from Attack the Block. And it kind of feels like that baseball episode of Fooly Cooly, like Mm -hmm. it rules, uh, especially for like the 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 budget and the constraints they were working with uh the whole album is wonderful i think the showcases of like dire break and the affirmation poison pop and cracker shot are all really really cool but like yeah no it's it's loud and it's noisy and it's kind of messy and like some of these are character songs like they also have multiple singers i i think this band is so cool it's one of my favorite albums of the year in my top five so that's a glowing endorsement from me to you beautiful All right, friends, we will see you in 2023. And you know what? I'm going to I'm just going to say it. We never do it at the end of the episodes, but I'm doing it this time around because we know we're doing it. We are kicking off the year with American Pie because we've got a lot planned for 2023 and American Pie is a big part of that. So we will see you then. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. By the way, I can't believe you asked Ramona out after I specifically told you not to do that. How are you doing that with your mouth? Never mind how I'm doing it. What do you have to say for yourself? Can I get a caramel macchiato?
You know what? Maybe it's high time you took a look in the mirror before you wreak havoc on another girl. Me? Wreak havoc? This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.